The Great Commission from Matthew chapter 28 verses 16 to 20. Have you ever spoken to someone knowing that it was the last time you would see them and your last opportunity to speak to them, speak with them? Some of you, some of you have. Many times we don't know, obviously, it's going to be our last conversation with them. And there is that regret and saying, if only I had known that that was going to be the last time. So when we knowingly have a a final conversation, it's usually, it tends to be in the face of death. And they're not easy to have, but they can help us quite a bit in the grieving process that has already started and will continue after the separation becomes permanent or for the believer until we see them again in the glories of heaven. This is because they're gone. And after they're gone, we will often relieve... uh, recall or relive those words, those last words that that were spoken, the details. And that brings comfort despite the separation, despite the pain, despite all that has transpired. In today's scripture, Jesus is having his final conversation with his disciples. Now, it's not the scene where they celebrate the last Passover. No, it's not the seven words from the cross. Here the mood is different. All of that is in the past. He has indeed died. He has come back to life in the glorious resurrection. He has been on earth coming and going, appearing and then disappearing and then coming again for a period of 40 days. The tone of the conversation is not one of sadness or one of grief, but rather one of comfort, of encouragement, of challenge and vision. And these are more than simply words that express a a desire or a a sentimental wish, but words that are actually a command. And this is the mandate from the boss himself, which we call the Great Commission. For upon these words and everything that preceded, obviously, leading up to this commission is is the whole enterprise of how the Christian faith reached the world with the gospel. Gospel that brings salvation to the world. So what is it about? What are these crucial words, the the last crucial words from the gospel of Matthew about? Well, first of all, it's about worship. It's about worship. Verses 16 to 17, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go 
And when they saw him, they worshipped him. We don't actually know which mountain it was. There's a lot of, quite a few mountains around that area. And they suspect it could be this or it could be that. It doesn't matter which, ultimately which mountain it was. Because he already told them that's the place that we're going to meet. And it's very clear that this was not going to be your regular catch-up meeting, you know, with an old friend over a cup of coffee. They had been already through the roller coaster ride of experiences in the past 40 and something days. Despair, to doubt, to faith. It's this up and down roller coaster where they, they've been tested. They've walked away from Jesus. They've come back to Jesus. And, and, and now the only possible response at the impact of this post-resurrection appearance, there's nothing else they could do except to worship. This means, this is, this is, very, this is crucial because it means that the Great Commission of the Church was given in the context of worship. Something special happens when we come together. Our very existence was born in worship and is sustained in worship and is advanced in worship. We may lead people to Christ anywhere, but we must direct them back to the breast of the church where public worship the people of God gather together to focus on what it's all about. And it's about him. It's all about him. You can, as you're driving along, listen to a wonderful, wonderful CD. They've still got CDs, right? Um, and Christian music in your car, a radio station and all of that and be moved to praise God. Maybe even have a quiet time through praise and worship. But it is not the same as when two or three, irrespective of the numbers, when with another brother or sister you gather together in his name, you come together and you worship. Something special happens. John Piper makes the connection between mission and worship by saying, the fuel for worldwide missions is worship. That's how important it is. The fuel for worldwide missions is worship. It's like an, an oven. It's like an oven where the temperature of our faith is lifted. It is easy to determine when something is aflame. It is lit. It is it's, it's getting consumed. It ignites other other material in which it comes into contact. But it is important also to note that unless that, that fuel is, is fed or unless that, that flame starts to spread, it will be self-consumed and it will eventually die out. It will burn out. That, that tells me that, that any church without a heart for missions 
He might have, you know, in his mission statement, he might have the Great Commission as mandate and all of that, but he hasn't got a heart for missions. It's really a contradiction in terms. There's nothing more than simply a fire that has gone out or about to go out. That is why there is no better worship than after we have been obedient to his call and we see God answers and we praise him for it. No better time to worship than when people come to faith. No better time to worship than when people are getting baptised. No better time to worship when prayers are answered. No better time to worship than when we see God's work through many people, just like the, the images that we saw of, of children who are, are abandoned with no hope and yet God calls somebody from somewhere and he sends them someplace and lives are restored and given hope. No better time to worship than when we hear the words of God declared from Scripture, just like we are seeing now, because it rings true in our hearts and it's, and it's truth that is being declared. This is God's marvellous work. What is it about? What is the Great Commission about? It's about conviction. It's about conviction. Verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. But some doubted. Hmm. If you thought that even after they saw him a few times, that their doubts would have dissipated by now. We've read about the encounter of doubting Thomas. If you thought that their faith was by this time, you know, into the stratosphere, that's how great and high it was, uh, you're wrong. Some continued to doubt. At least that of the eleven, Thomas is the one to remember, but it appears that others were in the same predicament. They didn't have it all worked out. There were still some doubters amongst the eleven and that is extraordinary. It's an extraordinary statement. Some scholars think that this might refer to the wider group of disciples and not necessarily to the eleven But here it says that the eleven were the ones who went up to the mountain. Be it as it may, this highlights for us that belief was not and never is this automatic process that is simply taken for granted by the Bible. That's In a Christian family, brought up with the gospel, you will have children who are believers and you will have, under the same circumstances, you will have children who are 
Not believers. It is not automatic. It is not simply taken for granted. But just simply because you grew up in a stable, you're going to be a horse. It doesn't happen like that. And if that is the case, how much more today, if they had Jesus there, right there, and they still doubted, how much more to us in the 21st century? They have always been and there always will be, same as in Christian families, there will always be churches filled with sheep, and goats. There will be churches with wheat and tares. There will be believers and doubters or sceptics. Unfortunately, it is really sad when those who doubt are actually in this position here from the pulpit. Preaching a different gospel or putting seeds of doubt in the hearts of believers that they distrust this particular passage. shouldn't be really trusted because of this, because of textual criticism here, then it's not part of, you shouldn't really take these verses seriously. Or recontextualize it for modern age and saying, well, that's just old stuff, doesn't apply to us anymore. And the, the seeds of doubt continue to spread. If you're not convicted by the message you deliver, how can you preach it with any authority? Others are perpetual doubters simply from the pew. And I've got friends like that, continually bombarding, whether it's my Facebook page or private messages and whatever, watch this and how they, you know, the Gospels and all of this, just continue to doubt and continually bombarding. I'm, I'm, I'm tired, I'm, I'm sick of it, actually. We've gone over this a thousand times. It's just continually test, testing your patience and saying, well, answer that we've gone over this. Why are we doing it again? Whether it's the pew or the pulpit, whether it's from here or it's from there, the same principle applies. If you are not touched and convicted by the truth of the Saviour, what possible witness can you bring to unbelievers? I will say one thing, if you're a doubter and you are here, at least you are here and not staying at home wallowing in your doubt. But just remember this, that doubt is not a comfortable mattress to sleep on. It's full of spikes and rocks and everything else. It's much more comfortable to rest on our faith. But the presence of doubters will not in itself stop the power of the gospel from going forth. It never has, it never will. The church has to continually move forward in the face of persecution, in the face of doubt, in the face of sheep and goats and wheat and tares and all of that, in the, pace, in the, in the face of heresy and continually you know, changing of the laws of the land and all of that. 
the kingdom of nothing will stop the kingdom of God from advancing. The, uh, the animals, there are two animals in the Australian coat of arms. You know who they are, the emu and the kangaroo. They could have chosen anything else really. They could have chosen a wombat. Hard to take a wombat seriously, isn't it? Sorry, but anyway. Or a koala bear, just cute and cuddly. So apparently these animals were chosen because they share a characteristic that appealed to our forefathers, our founding forefathers. Both the emu and kangaroo can only move forward, not back. Apparently. There is, in their gearbox, there's no reverse gear. Okay? They can only turn around and do a U-turn and, and, and walk in another direction. The emu is three-toed um, and it causes it to fall if it tries to go backwards. And the kangaroo has got this humongous tail on the back which just gets in the way if you're trying to go backwards. So this, I think, is a, is a good analogy for, you know, for a nation that wants to move forward and I think we have to say that since Federation that Australia has done marvellously well in moving forward in so many ways. But how much more for the church that truly chooses to follow Jesus Christ? It's always taking on the next challenge, that nothing is too difficult. Like Emmys and kangaroos, we only move forward. We don't, we don't look back, never back. And these are indeed the instructions from our Lord. What else is the Great Commission about? Well, it's about recognising his authority. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Verse 18. We have the assurance of Christ's supreme authority to accomplish everything he asks us to do. One of, one of the, the most basic principles in leadership training is that before you give someone the responsibility, before you delegate responsibility to someone, you must also give them the authority. You cannot be responsible for something over which you have no authority. So if I say to my eldest son Jeremy, if I say, look, look after the house while we are gone, I delegate to him not only the responsibility but also the authority over what happens and who comes and goes into the house. At the very least until we're away and then the authority comes back to me. Or Nancy. And Paul writes in Philippians 2, 9-11, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every on heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All power, all authority 
in Jesus' hands when he rose from the dead. The authority given to him by the Father, so therefore there is no angel, no demon, no king, no president, no dictator, no other authority in heaven and on earth which is not now subordinate to the risen Christ. The absolute sovereign over all that is knowable by created beings and created things. And Ephesians also says that Jesus' authority extends very specifically to his church. He founded it, he is the head, the church is the bride, he is the groom and if he has given us the responsibility to go then he has also delegated to us the authority to go and to do his will and in his name, not for our glory but for his. So we don't go powerless. We go with his delegated authority. Fourthly, what is the Great Commission about? It's about obedience. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. The marching orders are fairly simple. Jesus wants his church to make disciples. This is the, out of all the passages, this is the command verb. He doesn't say go and make Christians. He doesn't say go and make Baptists. He doesn't say make believers. Jesus defines disciples as people who would follow him, lay down their desires and take up their cross and follow him. They will take on his character. They will obey his word. They will represent him in their culture, in their context. Sometimes they will obey his call leaving their lands and going to a foreign land to do the impossible and leave the results to him. They're not people who are going to do their own thing. They're going to do the things that please him and that's the struggle. And there there is this three-step process involved in these in the other verbs, the non-command verbs, but they're, they're related to the command verb. We start by going. Going means we go where the people are. We don't necessarily expect them to come to us, we go to them. We build relationships at work, at, at school, at uni, in our neighbourhood. Wherever we are, we become people-oriented because these are the people created by God who God has brought in our midst. We can't begin making disciples unless we are where the people are at. Then he says, baptise. It's a wonderful thing. We should never belittle baptism despite the fact that we disagree with the Catholics and the Prezies and 
the Anglicans and everybody else about how one should be baptised and the amount of water and whether it's this or that and all of that, the words of Jesus are very clear. Baptising them. It wasn't uh, just an appendix type of thing. This is actually really important. People come to Christ. They are baptised. They identify with Christ. They declare their new allegiance in their baptism. In the early church, a a believer who was not baptised was just a contradiction in terms. It just didn't happen. If you believed, you were baptised. Baptism was the the marking, the the branding, this identification with the the Messiah. That was why baptism was so important. And then, of course, teaching obedience. Notice Jesus doesn't simply say teaching. I want you to teach them so that they know all the facts about the Bible when it was written and who wrote it and what year and what was the context and what language it wrote. I want you to learn Hebrew, I want you to learn Greek, I want you to even learn Aramaic if it's that's possible and, and to teach them all these stuff. No, Jesus said teaching them to obey. Teaching them to obey all, not just some, but all that I have commanded you. We teach what is essential and no, we don't have to know all the mysteries of theology and philosophy or science in order to accomplish his will. If you concentrate on Christ's commands, we have so much stuff to get through that years would not be enough. The years of a lifetime would not be enough because his commands are what he's the stuff that he's given us to do, teach, to obey. And fifth, what is it about? It's about his abiding presence. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, verse 20. Some of those disciples who were there could have objected by saying, look, hang on, you want us to do all this work and are you going to leave us? You're just going to go and sit there at the right hand of the Father and just take a holiday for the rest of the time, right? Is that, is that really, is that what you're proposing here? Leaving us all alone as orphans? No. It's not what he's saying at all. Jesus told his followers and he tells us, you're never going to do this alone. You're never going to go it alone. He didn't assign them this, this impossible, huge task and simply walk away. To reinforce that, he said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power. What is the power for? The power is so you can go, so you can minister, so you can do the impossible. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea, and Samaria, and to the remotest parts, to the ends of the earth. The film that I'm, we're encouraging you to go and see, Paul, Apostle of Christ, that you know, the many 
many more would go. I think it's because it's actually very challenging. How on earth can a group of weaklings, disciples, there wasn't much about them, could actually accomplish the impossible and eventually in 300 years, within 300 years, through love and sacrifice, defeat the most powerful empire that ever lived. When Christians who were, who were sent to the Colosseum to be eaten by lions, when Christians who, were, who had tar poured, poured upon them and then lit up like a torch and they were left in prisons and destitute and say, how on earth, where do you think the power is? The power is in, is in, is in Rome. The power is there with the emperor. Not in, 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 not in a prison. But God just flips things over, doesn't he? From the mouth of babes you have ordained praise. It's a great verse from, thank you for quoting that from Psalm 8. Where is the power in a little orphan child with no arms who can draw and paint with one finger? Where is the power in that? do this. And he does. He's been doing it through history. Don't be fooled by the the corridors of power and all of that. God has it all under control. No matter what laws they change and they bring and no matter what type of persecution will start upon Christians in the West. It's not as if it's original. It's been happening for 2,000 years. And more beyond before that. Think about this. Jesus was born in in an unlikely location, in a nowhere place really, to unlikely parents. He chose his first followers in an unlikely place. He didn't go searching for his disciples from the the religious schools for the most learned scholars. He didn't look among the ranks of the brilliant military leaders. He stayed away from the skilled statesmen and famous orators who were good with the gift of the gab. What did he do? He went to the shores of Galilee where they were fishing and called out four common fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James and John. By all indications, they weren't the best or the brightest. You know, it's not a talent quest. He just said, follow me. Let's go. Fishermen. Yes, I know, fishermen do have some redeemable traits. They're not a total loss, okay? They do tend to exaggerate, I know. It was that big, that big, yeah. But fishermen, they must be resourceful, sometimes courageous, in the middle of the the water and the waves are high. Essential trait of a fisherman is patience. Patience. 
Such qualities are obviously helpful in carrying out the Great Commission. But don't think that this is why Jesus chose them. He chose them because he wanted to demonstrate how God can transform ordinary men, ordinary folk into fishers of men. God's work is often done by unlikely people from unlikely places. People like you and me. What you and I must learn to do is to be successful in our obedience is to do what he tells us to do. Most men you see spend their days trying to be successful at something. Accumulation of wealth, accumulation of knowledge, building up some type of legacy. Through human eyes they sometimes encounter success, at other times they encounter failure, especially when they're trying to muck around with a cricket ball. Yet with our Lord, with the Lord's command, we are in the only vocation where if we follow what he tells us to do, success is 100% assured in his eyes, not in human eyes, in his eyes because we are simply doing what he told us to do. And our reward is not in, in human results, but in accomplishing his will, his way. Hudson Taylor, the famous founder of the China Inland Mission, said this, God's will done God's way will not lack God's support. And he knew what he was talking about. There's also a story of a, of a veteran missionary. He, had been, he served 25 years in the mission field, Bill Hyde, not as long as our sister Mary, Marie here. 25 years in the mission field and uh, he was killed during a terrorist bombing in the island of Mindanao in the Philippines. And when the mother of this lifelong missionary was notified of her son's death, she said, well, I would, rather have had, uh, I would rather have had Bill go to the Philippines and die there in the response to God's call than have him home today living in disobedience to God's call on his life. Do you want to live a long life or do you want to live a life lived for God? They can be different. <laughs> And many times they are. And to me, this is a family that understands the mission mandate. A family who has responded in the correct way to God's call in the Great Commission. The challenge is for us, how will we, how will we respond to the Great Commission to go? might be here in Australia, it might be overseas, it might be anywhere. But we need to listen very carefully to what he calls us to do because one day we will have to give account 
before his throne for this. May God bless us as we seek to do his will. We're going to finish uh, 